A reading from 1 Samuel. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to look for David and his men in the direction of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfold beside the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David went and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. Afterwards, David was stricken to the heart because he had cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to raise my hand against him, for he is the Lord's anointed. So David scolded his men severely and did not permit them to attack Saul. Then Saul got up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David also rose up and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and did obeisance. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of those who say, David seeks to do you harm? This very day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave, and some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not raise my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your cloak in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your cloak and did not kill you, you may know for certain that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you are hunting me to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the ancient proverb says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Against who has a king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. May he see to it and plead my cause and vindicate me against you. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Today, you have explained how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For who has ever found an enemy and sent the enemy safely away? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Now I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not wipe out my name from my father's house. So David swore this to Saul. When Saul, then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. 
This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him, and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on uh, this story out of David's life, that you would help us to understand its meaning and how we might uh, pull it toward ourselves and become a persons and a community that inhabits these beautiful words of scripture. So meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. So anointed but not enthroned, that is David's life um, in the stories that we've been reading over the last few weeks. And now, today it's a moment in which that reality is tested, right? Uh, you've, maybe you've been in circumstances where you've um, you felt like that which God wants for you, that which God has in front of you, that which God even promises you is held at bay, that it's just not there. Like you're in this intermediate space, you're gifted, you're anointed in a sense, but not enthroned. You're not in that space of work or relationship or vocation or on and on and on. Uh, it could go, David is anointed, but he's not enthroned and he's experiencing the injustice of his world, right? Uh, because Saul, who is the, the king that has been rejected, uh, is not just neutral in this relationship to David's own vocation, but he's oppositional to it. In fact, he's seeking his life. That's the reality that David experiences the call of God and the anointing of God upon his life. And it seems to me that that is exactly the space that each of us in this room live out our own life of faith, anointed but not enthroned. We're waiting for the future kingdom of God. And in this wait, we experience the profound brokenness, the profound abuse, the profound injustices and inequalities that mark our world and sometimes our own lives. Frances Young, in her book, uh, Brokenness and Blessing, 
she uh, observes that this dissonance between a world of justice and goodness and peace that we all long for and desire that in fact God actually promises and the actual world in which we live in, a world that is very often marked by suffering, injustice, more violence, right? That what is needed in that world by the church is a spirituality of the wilderness, a spirituality born of the wilderness, not of our happy, clappy moments when we just want life to be easy for ourselves, but we actually need to become persons in a community that has experienced the wilderness. Now, why is that? Think about this. Um, any moment in your life, in your own journey as a human being, you have likely experienced some form of suffering and denial, right? I mean, if I just, I mean, I hope that if I asked for a show of hands that every hand would go up. I hope that you're that much aware of the reality of how your life often plays out. We experience the brokenness of this world in countless ways. Wilderness. Wilderness, not fullness, not unending tales of happiness, but wilderness and suffering marks our days. And here's what happens in that space of wilderness. Uh, she is arguing in her book is just this, is it creates this opportunity that tests our own stories. And it's an opportunity for us to awaken to the limitation, the beautiful limitation of being a regular human being on the one hand, but on the other hand, an invitation to wake up to the glorious presence and power of a God who loves you and who is faithfully moving his kingdom forward. Anointed, but not enthroned, Eugene Peterson says that something like this in this wilderness experience of David is happening to him. He's growing up. It's a context for him to grow up. So let's think about this particular story. Now, this is a really fun story, right? Uh, because it's, it's loaded with a little bit of junior high humor, right? Saul goes into a cave to take a poop right? That's what's happening here, folks. Uh, so Saul, right, is chasing David. His, his anger against David, his sense of David being a threat to his kingdom is amped up. It's ramped up, right? This is a high moment. And so he gets news that he's in the, the wilderness space, the desert space of En Gedi, uh, which is near the Dead Sea. If you want more information, Mike Kelly is over there, Sidney Parker's over here, grab them after the service. I feel sure they can expound on those realities far better than I, but this is the reality I can lean into. Saul has to go to the bathroom, and he goes into the cave, and it happens to be the singular cave in which David and at least some of his men are hanging out at the back of the cave. Now, you can imagine, you don't want to be in the toilet cave. That is not a good place. That is not a fun place to be. But that is where David is hanging out, hiding from Saul as he seeks to take his life. So here you are in that particular moment. You're, uh, you're running from Saul. You're fleeing from Saul. You have maybe 300 men or so that are with you, that are loyal to you. They've become renegades with you against Saul, right? This is a fugitive moment. It's some sort of guerrilla warfare moment even perhaps. But here you are in the back of the cave and who should come into the cave but your enemy? The rejected king of Israel, Saul. And he's got to get in this vulnerable squat. What do you do in that moment? Like, what are the things that really begin to run through your mind? There are two extremes, right, that would obviously run through our minds. At least they'd run through my mind. Some of you would think, danger, 
This is a really dangerous moment, right? Because why? You're in the back of the cave. Saul, if he hears you, there are 3,000 men out in front of you. You're trapped, done, dead, outnumbered. On the other hand, you might think, wow, God is good to me. This is the gotcha moment. And this is when David has this opportune moment to just take Saul out when he's in this vulnerable squat. Just take him out. And the wisdom of the cave is saying what? Take him out. <laughs> right? The, the wisdom of the community that are a part of David, they're loyal to the him. Right? What are they saying? This is the day that the Lord has made. Right? This is the day that he has given your enemy into your hands. Now think about what that means for them. They're not neutral observers, friends. They are in the, st the stinky cave with David. And they're imagining what? Wow, if David becomes king, what happens? Beauty. We return home to our households. We uh, live in the land beneath the rule of David. David becomes king and we all go home. And so they're just bombarding David with their wisdom, right? This is what God wants. Have you ever been in situations where you absolutely imagine what you think God wants? It just seems so crystal clear, only later you discover it wasn't as crystal clear as you thought it was. This is that kind of moment. So what does David do? Well, he stealthily sneaks up and he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe as he's there, vulnerable in that moment. Um, and you, you, you read the story, right? And if you can imagine, maybe even if you were a child, right? You're in children's church that day and you're talking about this remarkable junior high story, right? And, and you're thinking, what does David do? What is he thinking? Do, you, do I kill him? Does he intend to do more than just sort of snip off the side of his robe? Or is this, you know, just some effort to merely humiliate Saul and sort of to prove his own greatness? Sort of, I, I have to admit, I kind of read this as a, it feels prank-like to me, almost. It feels just kind of that kind of strange, right? Uh, David is showing off his stealth skills, right? You know, that's what he's doing right here in this particular moment. But we don't really know what's happening inside of his head until the moment when the narrator wants us to know what's going on in his head. And the narrator very simply points out, and this seems to be the core point of this whole story, is that David is struck to the heart. David is struck to the heart over what he has just done, right? He is struck to the heart. He's stricken to the heart, right, over what he's just done. Now sit with that just for a moment. Sit in that reality for a moment. Saul is chasing you to kill you. You're hiding out in a cave. You know that you're anointed, you know that God's intention is that you become king. That is not unclear to you. But the opposition, right, the rejected king is oppositional to you. He's seeking your life. And here he has been vulnerably delivered into your presence. Who would fault David for taking his life? Wouldn't it just make the most sense to read the tea leaves as saying, now is the time. This is it. This is what God obviously wants. So I want you to put this in your own life for just a moment. There's always a little risk in that, right? But think about a situation in which you felt called. Um, we, we've heard Rachel and Mark talk about their sense of being called into mission, right? Um, called. 
Think about those moments of calling on your life. Maybe it's to some sort of action. Maybe it's that you want to become a vocal piece for some oppressed minority that you're aware of, some situation that you feel called to defend injustice. Maybe it is something with regard to your vocation. Maybe it is to do with some relationship that you believe God wants you in or you know, some, some choice that is in front of you. When have you felt a sense of certainty, this is what I'm made for? This is who God's made me to be. This is my vocation as a human being in this world. What did that feel like, those moments? Were they energizing to you? Were they empowering to you? Did they spur on your imagination to go somewhere else? What did it feel like to have just this, this moment, this maybe even a fleeting sense of this is the path and I'm going to take it. And then secondly, think about this. What did it feel like when you encountered opposition? When some obstacle was in your way, when some disruption of that path seemed to emerge, maybe there was some disagreement, maybe you get into a relationship and it was actually harder than you thought, and so you experience opposition from inside the relationship. Maybe it's a vocational choice you made and you, it seemed absolutely clear, this is the job, take it, but then you're in that job. Have you ever been there? And it just stinks because it isn't at all what you thought you'd signed up for. How do you live between those moments of being anointed but not enthroned? How do you live in those gaps of needing to express something of what it means to bear the image and likeness of God into your world, into that moment? How do you handle opposition? That's the moment that David is in. And what he seems to feel like is that there's some incongruence in this calling, this anointing, and the step that he's just taken, this misstep that he's just taken, because that's how he interprets it. I took a misstep. In other words, I lived in a way that doesn't go with the grain of the call that is actually in front of me. David has forgotten God, right? That's essentially what is happening in this moment of misstep. And he feels that in this moment that he'd just taken a misstep. It didn't fit the call that's on his life. Um, And so he's struck to the heart. To be struck to the heart, right, is to wake up. It's to wake up to that reality. It's to wake up to that incongruence. And, and why do we wake up to that? Because the Holy Spirit is upon him. The Holy Spirit strikes us to the heart. The Holy Spirit sort of awakens us to see things in our lives and in our stories that we don't see and that we'd rather actually avoid. And so here in this moment, David begins to recognize that Whatever he's done and whatever his intentions were in cutting off the corner of his cloak, that it's out of accord, it's, it's, it's against the grain of that which God is actually calling him to do. So what does he do? He turns, he repents essentially from following the prevailing wisdom of the cave toward God and his wisdom who gave him the call in the first place. God has created you in his likeness. That's your calling. It's your vocation. It's to be a human being who inhabits life in this world that very often expresses a reality that is absolutely contrary to the world that God dreams of and promises will one day come true. 
How will you live in that space? How will you inhabit your calling across your different spheres of life, all of the different callings that you have in life, as, as whatever that is, as a friend, as a neighbor, as a colleague in some workspace, as a person who's just trying to figure out your work, as a person who lives in, in, in an awareness of the injustices that are in our world. How will you inhabit those realities in this world? Will you live into the likeness of God or away from the likeness of God? That's the story that's unfolding in front of us in David's life. And the narrator seems to want us to understand that the end never, ever justifies the means. In fact, really, for God, the end defines the means. God's ways are as important as the promises he's actually made. Because the ways, the means become a space in which we actually get to know the kind of God that he is. And so as David turns, as he wakes up to this reality, he sternly rebukes the men, right? In other words, he, the, the, the language here is that he was very harsh with them. He was very stern with them. He gets in their face, right? Why? Because they, like him, had lost sight of the presence of God, the presence of his power. We live in a world of violence and yet we pray for peace. And very often, what you and I are often called upon to discover in ourselves is that what God wants for us, first of all, is that we would become persons who are reconnected with our limitations as human beings and reconnected with the greatness of his own story and what he intends. And if you don't understand both of those things, you'll never follow the path of being a human being in this world very wisely. And what you reveal out of your life will not be the story of Christ, but the wisdom of the cave. God is present to us in the wilderness, promising his future. Now, the rest of the story unfolds with David honoring the king, right? So there's the space in which he comes out of the cave and he wants Saul to know, right? Maybe this is a political maneuver, I have no idea. But he wants Saul to know, I saw you. And I was with you, but I did not take your life. And so he simply tells him the story of what is just unfolding. And it becomes an occasion in which David essentially says, look, I, I'm, I didn't kill you the way you're trying to kill me. I didn't use the means against you that you were using against me. And Saul has a moment, a flash of revelation in which some slight way he wakes up himself. And he sees the prevailing goodness of David. He acknowledges something of that goodness. And he acknowledges in some sense that David is the rightful king. And he asks him to remember his household when he comes in to his kingdom. Saul moves on, but David returns to the hat out, awaiting the vindication of God. It's an interesting story, isn't it? Anointed, but not enthroned. When you leap over into the New Testament, we read Jesus' own life story of anointing, but awaiting enthronement. The whole story of the Gospels, it seems to me, are exactly that story. A calling by God, an anointing by God, and yet awaiting for the fullness of God's kingdom to come to pass. And so what we discover in the life of Jesus through reading the Gospels is the means of God's kingdom. 
We discover a God who is in person in our world, not far off, but very imminent to it. He's close up. He's near us. And what we see in his life is a radical display of power that is completely open-handed toward his enemies, loving those around him, speaking truth to those around him, but never, ever grasping at his own title of godness. It's a beautiful story, the story of Jesus There's the beautiful place at his baptism where the anointing becomes this really public moment there at the Jordan and the spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. Remember the story? There he is at this moment of baptismal identity in which he agrees with this massive plan of God to bring about justice and redemption and goodness and truth and beauty in our world through his presence. The Spirit falls upon him, and in that moment, the Father's voice is heard. This is my beloved Son, and with him I'm well pleased. And if you could just sort of hang out in that baptismal moment, most of us would probably stop. Because that's such a beautiful moment, that feeling, that experience, and awareness of the Father's love upon the life of Jesus. The affirmation of the Father. But the rest of Jesus' life in the Gospels, and really up until this point, is actually a life of the wilderness. It's a wilderness experience. It's a movement in which that vocational calling is tested over and over and over again. Which words will animate the life that you live? Whose wisdom will animate the life that you live? Whose wisdom will you embody in your effort to play out this word of sonship or this word of vocation of being Messiah, whose word will animate your life. And the whole of the Gospels tell us that story. The Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness where his story is in a very ramped up fashion, tested by the devil himself. And what does Jesus come back to over and over again, except to the presence of God, the love of God upon his life, the assurance that God is trustworthy, that you can hold on to him. But here's the thing you need to remember about all of those moments. Nothing in Jesus's external world confirms that. Nothing. He's still being sought. There's still opposition. His life is going to move toward crucifixion. But Jesus' life over and over again and all of those gaps between anointing and enthronement is inhabited by those beautiful words of the Father speaking to Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you, I am pleased. And those words mark every interaction that Jesus has in his world of injustice. That story shapes the story he enacts. And that vocation is the vocation that Jesus places upon us as well, anointed but not enthroned. And then there's this surprise turn at the end of Jesus' life because if you're expecting the Messiah, you're expecting this beautiful moment of coronation and enthronement. But for Jesus, it all sort of culminates in this moment of crucifixion outside of the city among criminals. And here in the story that we've read this morning, we have that story. Jesus between the criminals, one of them who just is like 
sort of jabbing at him still, even knowing himself to be a criminal and Jesus to be innocent, is just jabbing. Use your power. Use your power in a dramatic, right-handed, powerful way, Jesus. Get us out of this predicament. And then there's the radical humility of the other criminal who just looks on Jesus and he's woke. He gets it. He sees him. He's the Messiah. He's the one in whom God's presence comes. He's the one that brings the eternal kingdom of God. He's the one that brings justice. I don't know how to make sense of the cross. But the criminal says what? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then there's that beautiful promise of God that today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is the gateway into the very presence of God and he's the gateway for us to move into a very different way of expressing our own humanity. The question for us is how is it that you will live with your anointing? If you've come to Christ, you're a recipient of the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8, Paul says that it is by the Spirit that we cry out to God, Abba, Father, you are my Father. In other words, it's by the Spirit's anointing upon our lives that we remember who God is, that we remember who we are, and not as alien from him, but adopted, brought into a part of belonging to his family. Paul goes on to say that all creation awaits for that moment of glorious unveiling of the sons and daughters of God. You live in the gap. How will you inhabit the gap? Whose words will animate your actions in the gap? Alter the way you live in your body, in your life, in your story, in your own circumstances of injustice, and sadness, and sorrow, and suffering, and the way you experience that amongst your neighbors in a city like ours and in a world like ours, how will you inhabit these gaps? As a son, a daughter of God, who hears those words that Jesus heard ringing in your own ears, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are my beloved, and with you I'm pleased so that when we're in our wilderness spaces, we would live as children of God. That's the calling upon our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who never inhabited his humanity the way we do, and who never held on to power the way we see it held in our world. And so we pray that you would enlarge our own imaginations that we would humble ourselves before him and his greatness and that you would raise us up so that we would hear your voice over our lives and know of your great love and that we also, like him, would live as sons and daughters of God in our broken world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.